It's Tuesday, July 25th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Washington Post did a big takeout, a big investigation about gold being advertised on right-wing media. And they say pitches to invest in gold coins are a daily presence in media that caters to a right-wing audience and often echo conservative talking points about looming economic and societal collapse. By the way, those are now left-wing talking points too, but for different reasons. This has always been true. The gold bugs, though, they mainly gather on the right. They also have a big overlap with the MMT crowd. I'm not sure that Columbia economist or economics history professor Adam Tooze is more anti-gold than he is anti-dollar bill. But the Post, in their research, because someone has brought, or a few people have brought suit against some of the more unscrupulous gold companies, writes... The Post found no similar ads for gold retirement investments in mainstream or left-wing media sources in the database. Wrong! The just did one! Many other leading economists and analysts also gave ominous warnings to investors. Robert Kioski tweeted this earlier in August about a major crash to come. Now, I want you to know that the company that I advertised, they, I looked them up, I looked them all up, they had a five out of five star rating on the Better Business Bureau, an A plus rating. You know, you could really invest in gold and not necessarily get ripped off. In fact, if you time your investment well, okay, I'm not doing the ad, but there's a legitimate way to invest in gold. I guess though, only the conservatives emphasize that. And there are many illegitimate gold places that will advertise on conservative radio and podcasts. There's just something about gold that codes right. Just like pledge drives, not even public radio pledge drives, but pledge drives in general, they code left. Just the hardness and the tactile nature of gold. Drop it on your foot and it will hurt. It's more of a conservative thing. Whereas, hey, please have a good intention and feel free to follow up on that intention. We'd really like it. That code's sort of left. Now, if you're overall looking for my guidance on ads and what do you come to the gist if not to hear all of the good ads that I play? Although there is a possibility that you could listen to the gist without ads. I'll get to that in a second. But I did listen to this one interesting ad and I wanted to raise an issue about a portion of it. Okay, here it is. Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. It is an ad to eliminate all those commercials on all those comedy podcasts you listen to. But see if you can pick up right at the end, they sneak it in quickly, a statement that could be seen as undercutting some of what came before. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Yeah, but that's fine, right? I mean, they're just ads. Wait, that's the whole point of the ad, not to have to suffer through just ads. What if the only ad eliminated on the comedy podcast were that ad which promised fewer ads? In a way, they wouldn't be lying. And now if I were very crass, I'd mention ad-free gists are available at subscribe.mikepesca.com. I'd say our upcoming guest is the subject of a bonus Pesca Plus episode at subscribe.mikepesca.com. I am not that crass. I am not that brass. I seek to keep my reputation 
as good as gold, which seems to be not a very good reputation at all. On the show today, the far right is poised to win or maybe lose or maybe just get stuck there in Spain. But first, almost everyone agrees that the U.S. healthcare system is broken. All right, so how to fix the problem? Who has some good ideas? I'll tell you who. My next guest, Amy Finkelstein, has some great ideas. They're collected in a new book out today called We've Got You Covered. We've got to get this book into the right hands. Many practical fixes on the vexing issues surrounding healthcare. MIT professor and MacArthur scholar. Yeah, that's a genius, Grant. Amy Finkelstein up next. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Amy Finkelstein is a professor at MIT's Department of Economics. She is an expert in the economics of healthcare, which is something she doesn't like to admit out loud because then people corner her and try to get her answers. Well, what should we do with the system? Her father-in-law tried this one day and then the next day and then the third day. And finally, the cry of, you're an expert. You must have some ideas got through. So her ideas, along with co-author Laurent Einov, are in the new book, We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare. The sort of very readable, very interesting. And if uh, the right people listen, I think it could, I think you could be on to something, Amy. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. So that's the backstory. People pressing you, especially a family member pressing you, come on, come up with something. Tell us what we should do. But let's go back a little bit. The reason that this came up is that it is so apparent to so m- many that it's just not working. The American system of healthcare is just not working. And you don't you don't doubt or rebut that claim, do you? No. And and our editors, our publisher was very clear that nobody wanted to read a book that was just about how messed up the US healthcare system was, because in some sense we all kind of already know that. Right. So I guess the question I was watching a TED talk saying there's a difference between reform and abolition. I didn't quite buy that in all instances, but when it comes to healthcare, I, I'm somewhere between reform and abolition. I guess it means, I guess the question is, what does abolition mean? But how much, it, are there parts that are working and should we try to keep those parts? Good question, Mike. So to be clear, our focus is on coverage, how to get, uh, how to fulfill what is clearly we've been trying and failing to do for, for decades, if not centuries, as we discuss in the book, which is to make sure that when uh, people are critically ill, they are able to access essential medical care regardless of resources. And from that perspective, our answer is 
we have to tear it down. Not because, no, so no, we shouldn't retain anything. Not because we want to. It's incremental reform is always both you know, easier to think about and, and has fewer risks, right? Like, let's, let's keep what's working and let's just extend coverage to the people who don't have it. Unfortunately, what we have learned the hard way is that incremental reform will never get us to where we need to be. Because uh, whenever you try to patch the patchwork, as it were, there will always be gaps in the seams. And, and one of the most striking pieces of, of uh, I guess, one of the most striking data points that convinced us of this is the fact that although a lot of policy attention and dialogue focuses on the 30 million Americans who are uninsured at any moment in time, you know, one in 10 Americans under 65, a, 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 a I think very important fact that gets much less attention is that a much higher share of Americans, one in four Americans under 65, will have some period without insurance over a two-year period. And that's fundamentally the result of the crazy patchwork we already have. Mm -hmm. And then you have good statistics about how many people are worried about it being tied to their jobs and how many people make decisions based on the perceived inavailability of healthcare, should they make different life choices? It's a ripple effect that redounds throughout society. So if someone listening believes or buys into, as I do to some extent, most Americans have healthcare and like it, so why abolish it? You very clearly focus on this fact. There really are no uninsured, are there? An area of uninsurance of people really being uninsured is you talk about your wedding ring. If you lose your wedding ring and you don't have insurance, that's it. You lost your wedding ring. I think of car insurance. You're mandated to get car insurance. But think about there are some countries you don't have to get car insurance and you get into a crash. Will anyone actually fix your car? They will not. You can go bang out the dents in your car if you're so inclined. But if you get into a car crash without car insurance, your car is screwed. But if you get unhealthy and you are so-called uninsured, you still get health care. In fact, a fascinating stat in the book is that something like four out of five uninsured people got some form of health care, but also that they paid 20% of their bills. So let's be real about who is uninsured. The answer is no one. And with that in mind, what does that compel us to do next? So, right, no one is uninsured. So you might just say, great, so we're done. What's the problem? <laughs> the problem is that Almost no one is well insured either. And by that, I don't just mean the people who lack formal insurance, the ones you just so eloquently talked about, but also uh, most of the rest of us, the 90% of Americans who are fortunate enough to have formal health insurance, either through an employer, another private plan, or a government program like Medicare and Medicaid. Okay, two problems. The first, as I already mentioned, we're fortunate to have insurance at this moment in time, but we risk losing it because we change jobs or because we get our income or our age or our disease status changes and we lose eligibility for a program. So it's kind of perverse that insurance, which is all about security and certainty, is itself highly uncertain. That's yeah. problem one. Second problem 
even if you're fortunate enough to maintain your insurance coverage, uh, you can find yourself on the hook for catastrophic medical expenditures. So a startling fact that we also talk about in the book is not only that medical debt in the United States is enormous, uh, it's the same size as all the other consumer debt for non-medical purposes combined, but here's the really startling fact. Three-fifths of that debt was incurred by households that have health insurance. So yes, no one is uninsured, but no one is well insured. They risk losing their coverage and they risk facing catastrophic medical bills despite supposedly being insured. That's not a sustainable system. In fact, it's not a system at all. It's not a system. What's the Walter Cronkite quote about the American yeah. healthcare system? Yeah, the American healthcare system is neither healthy nor caring nor a system. It's very, it's very Mike Myers on uh, Coffee Talk when he used to do when he used to do that riff. But I do want to get back to the idea of we have made, and you talk about it in the book. Let's talk about philosophy, whether we realize it or not. We have a social compact. We are not going to let people die in the streets. There was a time when hospitals used to kick people out. Now we have rules against that. It doesn't solve the problem. It's just a rule against it. And a bit of burden shifting. But we are not going to let people die. We are going to give people something that amounts to emergency care. You quote one or two quasi-philosophers, like maybe Pat Buchanan saying, the the solution is when you see someone dying to pass him by and not worry about it. But almost no one believes in that. So that alone, you write convincingly, compels us to think about it in a more rigorous, systematic way. To think about, since we're going to pay for people anyway, we should do what? What is the implication of acknowledging that we're not going to let people suffer, die, and be turned away from hospitals? And just to be clear, Mike, it's not, although the emergency room is the the thing that people often focus on, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg. It, it's yes. not just you know, that we require emergency care. There's a huge host of public requirements and public funding to provide non-emergency care to people. The implication, which is not a new insight of ours, it's one that's been embraced by uh thinkers and uh, public policy officials across the political spectrum. The implication is if we're not going to, as you put it, and others have let people die in the streets, it, let's recognize that that's what we're going to, that, that eventually we're going to provide the care. Let's formalize and fund that commitment up front through the tax system and give people the coverage that ultimately, and tell them up front that they have the coverage that ultimately we will feel compelled to provide. And and this is an idea, you know, that is, you know, on the left, clearly, it's not surprising that people have embraced, but, but it's been embraced on the right. You know, Mitt, Governor Mitt Romney, the Republican governor of Massachusetts, that was his argument for mandatory health insurance in Massachusetts, which predated the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the, the conservative economist uh, Frederick Hayek, you know, embraces even, even the libertarian Charles Murray, who wants to get rid of all government programs and just give people cash, get the government out of people's lives. His one exception is for mandatory health insurance, because otherwise, inevitably, you give people cash, they spend it on something else, and they end up sick and, and, and unable to afford medical care, we're going to step in. Right. So this leads you to not just recommend, but to uh, implore us, just adopt as a country a basic 
universal coverage. Very basic. It needs to be very basic, but it is just an acknowledgement that we're paying for this anyway, right? Yes. I mean, we're going to pay for it. Let's formalize it. And then let's have the tough decisions about exactly what we will and won't commit to paying for. Will this save money from the haphazard, we're going to do it anyway, uh, method uh, that we have of uh, the de facto implementation of universal basic health care? It won't save money, nor is it designed to. It's designed to fulfill the commitment we clearly have. Whether or not it costs additional taxpayer money is up to us. As we discuss in the book, we can fulfill our our clear commitment without increasing taxes. We might choose to, uh, but we don't have to. And the reason we don't have to is very simple. As your listeners and you, I'm sure, know, uh, the U.S. is unusual in not only in not having universal health insurance, but in spending basically twice as much of our uh, economic output on health care compared to any other high-income country. So we spend about 18% of GDP compared to 9% on average in most other high-income countries. But we're also unusual that in most of those other countries, it's essentially all government finance, taxpayer financed. Whereas in the U.S., only about half of healthcare is publicly financed through direct expenditures or tax subsidies. Okay, so you know, I know this this isn't a isn't a, a graduate <laughs> seminar, so I'll keep the math simple. But half of twice as much yeah, is yeah. the same amount. So yeah. we're spending eight percent of GDP on healthcare, but only half of it, nine percent of GDP, is taxpayer finance. Well, nine percent of GDP is what all these other high income countries, Germany, the UK, Australia, what have you, on average, are spending to provide universal basic coverage. So yeah, it's pretty darn simple. We can do it without raising taxes. It's good to express this as a percentage of GDP, but things are going to be more expensive in the richest countries just because of law and supply and demand. And there are other things that we spend on that seem to be out of whack, like our transportation spending is, it just costs so much more to build things in the United States for whatever reasons. Um, Is some of that going on with healthcare, Will, or are are you saying that the basics of 50% of 200% is 100, that will... Address all these questions about how relatively expensive healthcare is for America. No, you make a really good point, Mike. I'm saying we can do it. Doing it, you know, will could involve some painful choices. Uh, on the dimension both of what is covered in that basic coverage, we give the example with um, with you know uh, economy or you know budget airlines versus business class travel. You know, the purpose of an air of an airplane is to get you from point A to point B without crashing that can be done you know with limited leg room no wi-fi and you know having not getting any free checked bags yeah so you know there's what's covered and how how nice the amenities are and you mentioned prices there's also how much we pay physicians uh and and uh you know other healthcare providers uh we pay them less in our medicaid program currently than we do in private health insurance or medicare and you know, one way to keep costs down in the basic coverage, in addition to keeping it basic, is to uh, is 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 on the price side. So those are choices we can make. Different countries have made them differently. That's a political or or practical question that reasonable people can disagree on. Our key point is uh, 
it's separate from the question of how to fulfill our social contract, which if we choose, we can do it without raising taxes. If we feel we want to pay physicians more than in other countries, then maybe we will need to raise taxes. But those are choices. Yeah. So you recommend the Spirit Airlines version of healthcare for everyone is what you're saying. With the ability for people who want to, you know, buy a first class ticket on, you know, choose your favorite, you know, commercial uh, airline mm-hmm. to be able to do so. And to but only that alone, have the- that alone the- is a debate, right? There, there are instances where just the possibility of some people paying to get out of the system degrades the system. This happened with UCLA, where there was a concierge service. So those people could skip the line. Well, guess what? If they're skipping the line, it pushes everyone back on the line a little bit. Absolutely. I think the biggest concern that we grappled with in having a supplemental system, a skip the line system, as you will, um, was not the inequality that that would create, not because we love inequality, but just because we have inequality in everything in, in, in our lives. Um, but the concern that the ability to skip the line would erode the basic system either um, through a political argument, well, if enough people skip the line, then, you know, they don't want to spend the taxpayer money on for the people who are stuck in line. Or, as you said, just a plain economic argument, there's, you know, a limited supply of high quality hospitals or physicians at any given moment. And if people are paying extra for them, what's going to happen to the rest of us? So this is a real concern. We tackle it in the book. The answer is pretty practical. First, as a practical matter, every Every country except for Cuba, North Korea, and a few Canadian provinces allows this type of skip the line supplemental coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and and they haven't all, you know, had their healthcare systems collapse. Uh, so practically, that's it's hard to imagine we wouldn't end up there. And then we talk about how how to deal with these concerns. Uh, in some countries, uh, in fact, it's the it's the opposite. Like in Australia, they actually subsidize people to buy the skip the line insurance because they feel that it relieves budgetary pressure on the government program. In other countries, and we give the example of Israel, where where they started with universal basic coverage with this skip the line feature in 1995, and by about 2010, for a combination of reasons, they'd had a bunch of immigration, healthcare costs had gone up, they found that um, wait times were becoming intolerable in the basic system, many more people were going to the supplemental system, and so they they studied it, and they undertook a series of reforms to fix it. Number one, not rocket science, increase funding for the basic system. And number two, institute a series of, you know, uh, regulatory and financial incentives to encourage physicians to practice in both systems. Um, And that worked. So it's not a sexy answer. It's not a fit on a bumper sticker answer. But you know, paying attention to the problem, knowing the problem could be there and paying attention and solving it with regulation and, and a healthy dose, dose of finances can go a long way. Well, healthcare as a human right is a bumper sticker answer. And as you point out, it's vacuous. Medicare for all is a bumper sticker answer and it doesn't actually get us towards a solution. All the bumper sticker answers seem to be actually not answers. I'm with you there, Mike. Okay. So does the universal basic coverage help Others besides the people who are uninsured, the most destitute, the people who uh, are most desperate in our society. Not that they're not very important to help, but sell it to the middle class person who says, you know, I work for a union and as a result, I bargain for my health insurance and it's not terrible. 
Absolutely. Um, it's a, the, the universal basic coverage is a just clear win, as you said, for people who are uninsured. For the one-fifth of Americans who currently have Medicaid, the public health insurance for low income, it's going to be pretty similar to that. But now that they can, they can now they'll be able to supplement it, where whereas currently they're not allowed to. For for the privately for the person with quote unquote good private insurance through their union, there's going to be two clear benefits. First, no risk that they'll ever lose that coverage if they lose or change their job or want to retire before 65. Second, no risk that they'll discover that for an essential medical service, uh, in fact, it's not covered or you have to pay a large amount out of pocket because we're going to have absolutely no patient payments in the basic system. So those are two clear wins, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's going to be much more basic than their current coverage. So, you know, both on the uh, uh, question of wait time for non-urgent services, perhaps, you know, flexibility of choice of doctor and the, the, the amenities that aren't really healthcare, but get bundled in there. Like, you know, how many, do you get a private hospital room, semi-private hospital room, or you tend to tend to a yeah. ward? So it's gonna be worse on those dimensions and they may choose to supplement. You know they're already paying something for their current health insurance, so they may choose to instead put it towards a supplement policy, or they may decide that actually, you know, the the essential medical care with absolutely no worries about losing coverage or having to pay out of pocket for essential care is fine with them, and you know they'll take the the ten people to a hospital room should they be unfortunate enough to get sick and and use their money elsewhere. That that's a choice. Okay, let's build on the universal basic coverage. You've made some points about why it doesn't, why it helps others besides just uh, the lowest rung of people in need of healthcare. Where do we go next to reform ab slash abolish our crazy system? I'm sorry, I don't understand your question. Well, if we do that, a universal basic coverage, there are other reforms to undertake in the system, other reforms that you recommend. What else should we do? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. So one thing which is both, you know, kind of incredibly banal, but at the same time, bizarrely radical is if we have universal basic coverage, it's got to have a budget. Yeah. Now, <laughs> that, duh, right? Why, why, why are we saying that? Because- Well, you are an MIT economist. Yeah, we takes, need you to point these things out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it turns out much, I think, I mean- to, I think many people's surprise, certainly ours, is that the U.S. does not have a healthcare budget, even say Medicare, the biggest health insurance program in the U.S. that some people, as you said, want to extend for all, does not have a budget in the sense that, you know, to give a silly example, when my children get an allowance, that's their budget. They can't spend more than that, right? The Medicare budget is a budget not in the sense of a cap on how much Medicare can spend, but a either backward looking how much it spent last year or a projection of how much it will spend next year. It's, you know, Medicare patients and doctors submit the bills and Medicare just pays them. We do not actually have a binding budget constraint. And that's, that's insane. We can't make the tough choices of what should be covered and what shouldn't without a budget. Um, and that's partly why uh, Medicare spending has grown so fast. So key to you universal. Have, by the way, this is one of this is one of those uh, premises, one of those planks of your ideas that I think should appeal to a classic conservative. Uh, 
Yeah, I think so. I think, as I said also, I think the notion that we fundamentally try to do this anyway, so we might as well formalize it, has been yes. articulated by the conservatives. That's true. You picked out the ones who were able to p- articulate it. I don't know in if, if Mitt Romney is in good standing with the mainstream of the conservative movement. As I, uh, as I interpret the politics, they might know that's true, but it's not a selling point on the campaign trail. Whereas for a Democrat or a liberal, we're going to help these people who are suffering and we'll think about money some other way that is something to say at a rally versus look we're spending the money anyway let's be formal about it i don't know how rousing it is so it's a little bit different right it's not something they're not going to put it in or your idea of universal coverage we're really doing this de facto anyway they're not going to put it uh, on their website with their 14 point plan but we're going to have cost certainty we're going to have an actual budget that is something they would maybe say at a rally Yeah, I can totally see that. So yes, that's a key part of universal basic coverage, that it has a budget. Another key part is that it be automatic. So none of this, we're going to require everyone to get coverage. And when they don't, we're going to kind of you know, wring our hands about that, right? That if you want, one thing we've learned over the last sort of decade of, of uh, U.S. healthcare policy is, you know, Giving, making people eligible for coverage is not the same as coverage. So there's very much not the same, right? Correct. So, so here's a startling fact that of the uninsured, the estimates suggest that six in 10 of them are in fact eligible for either free or heavily, heavily discounted health insurance. And yet they're not covered. And there's a variety of reasons. Uh, They may not realize they're eligible. They may not uh, be able to assemble the documentation and fill out all the paperwork to show that they're eligible. Or, and this is kind of the, the craziest, they may have enrolled in a program, but any program that has an eligibility requirement has to make sure every once in a while you're still eligible. And they may not realize they had to recertify and they fall off the rolls. And this yeah. is this is why incremental reform will never cut it. That adding a few more patches, you then have to know which patch you're eligible for when. And yeah. and it's just it's just too much. So that's another Yeah. I should point out the uh, Obamacare had 600 million de- dedicated to healthcare navigators, people who will help you uh, help you get your way around this opaque and hard to understand bureaucracy. Here's another solution. Let's level the bureaucracy. You got healthcare coverage. That's it. Everyone has it. And then, and then we start from there. Sounds good to me. Uh, I know it does. I got the idea from you. (laughs) Amy Finkelstein is a professor in MIT's Department of Economics. She has won the MacArthur Fellowship. Yeah, that's the Genius Grant and the John Bates Clark Medal. She is the co-author of We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now, the spiel. Spain has a hung parliament after the socialists and the conservatives each failed to get a clear-cut majority. What could be seen as just a classic case of Iberian paralysis is also 
at the same time being framed as an example of the rise of the European right, the populist right, or in a common phrase here from Britain's Channel 4, the far right. It could mean the far right back in government for the first time since the dark days of Spain's fascist dictator, General Franco. A time of rigidly enforced traditional Catholic family values, when workers' and women's rights were still a long way off and Madrid was in charge of everything. Okay, that could happen. It could be bad. I certainly know that Poland has become oppressive and right-wing, and Hungary, under Viktor Orban, seems stuck somewhere between autocracy and thugocracy. But a part of me always wonders how much to buy into the American framing, or as heard there, sometimes the British press's description of what the far right might mean in other countries, European countries. Marine Le Pen? No friend to openness, I would say, but then again, neither would Ron DeSantis be that. A few weeks ago, I was pondering on the gist, it's a podcast I listen to and sometimes talk on, the rise of the neo-Nazis, the Nazi influence of the Sweden Democrats. And I did notice when Sweden joined NATO, there was nary a Nazi cavil. My point wasn't, hey, how come you guys are accepting and cavorting with the Nazis? It was more like, how far right were they? I mean, when they were elected, we said, oh, they used to be the Nazis, but when it comes time to join NATO, there is a big celebration. Remember in Austria there, the People's Party under Sebastian Kurz, Road to Victory, Time Magazine headline 2018, Austria's young chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, is bringing the far right into the mainstream. So did he rule as a fascist? He did not. In his case, he tried to rule as a would-be kleptocrat. His government was undone by corruption. Did Austria learn and back off? No. Peter Hayek, a Vienna-based pollster, said, it's a classic Austrian attitude. There will be no revolutions. You just come to terms with it. Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney leads the Brothers of Italy, which historically absolutely had neo-fascist origins. There was widespread concern about the Italians under Maloney. But guess what? Maloney has governed as a pragmatist. She now enjoys some degree of popularity from across all sectors in Italy. I mean, things aren't going well in Italy. They never are. But Maloney is not a new Mussolini. So sometimes fears of the right in Europe are overblown. And I get why. We did whiff once and it was pretty bad. But sometimes the fears aren't realized until it's too late. Let us take Europe's most bona fide right-wing governments and Hungary, Orban, was seen as, in fact, he flat out was a center-right politician. He governed as one. He had a fairly normal term as prime minister in the late 90s, early aughts, and then he was out of power, and then he came to power again, and it was only then that his more thuggish right-wing tendencies became apparent. Although he's popular, he's genuinely popular, and you have to take that into account too. Same with Poland's Law and Justice Party. They came in not as neo-fascist, but as a logical rebuke to the failed leaders who preceded them. I'll read from the New York Times coverage. The Polish electorate has repudiated the group of former communist officials who gathered under the umbrella of the Democratic Left Alliance, who have dominated the country's politics for much of the past decade. By the way, under them, the economy was terrible. The Times goes on. Law and Justice seems to have done well, in large part because the Kaczynskis, those are the twins, well, one died, but those are the twins that led the party themselves, 
have retained an image of cleanliness and honesty in a Poland that has been mired in one corruption scandal after another for several years. My favorite, my favorite missed blinking fascist light is Turkey. Let us consider Turkey a European country for these purposes, certainly in NATO. Do you remember the ascent of Erdogan? I do. I recall the coverage as cheering him on as a voice of moderate Islam. And wasn't it great that Islam could have this prominent moderate face? This was right well, soon after 9-11 in the early aughts. And also, wasn't it great that he was just Islamic? There was a celebration of this because the Turkish military was seen as an oppressive and secular institution. What a story. It all played into the biases of Western media. It all was just a whole bunch of wishful thinking that got Erdogan entirely wrong. I was looking through the archives to confirm that this was how it was played, and I came across just the most perfect example in the Washington Post. It was a staff editorial. Let me read it to you. Headline, a timely victory in Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan shows that democracy and moderate Islam can be a good mix. It says, the success of the AK party, that's Erdogan's party, both in government and at the polls, is demonstrating that political parties grounded in Islam can not only thrive within a democratic political system, but also help strengthen it. Mr. Erdogan, like many Turks from the country's sprawling interior, is a devout Muslim, but he has made no move during five years in office to Islamicize Turkish government or curb the rights of secular Turks. On the contrary, he has pushed through liberalizing reforms, including greater rights for women, presiding over an economic boom driven by foreign trade and investment, and press for Turkish entry into the European Union. All of those things have been undone, turned on their head. He did get into NATO, and I think it made NATO and the West a little bit weaker. So what am I saying? That sometimes we get it wrong? Yeah, sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we're wrong about the right, and sometimes what becomes right at first seems pretty left. Sometimes the worries do come to pass, but the correlation between concern and eventual calamity is a very poor one indeed, and I say that factoring in all the false positives and the false negatives. Plus the recent flood of immigrants from the war in Syria, plus also unrest in Africa and global warming throughout the globe, as one would imply from the phrase global warming, this has caused so many worries about immigration. And some of those worries are legitimate, and some of those worries aren't worries but ugly attitudes, but it is always a temptation for more left-wing parties to paint their rival conservative parties with the label anti-immigrant. As far as Spain, I hope they do muddle through. It'll be interesting to see if Catalan separatists, in some cases, literally criminal Catalan separatists, are part of the left-wing coalition. But please remember, Spanish rightists, Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still, in fact, dead. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, with the senior producer being one Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Our top story tonight, Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still dead.